Let's turn together in our Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. And we're going to read from verse 54 into chapter 12 to verse 8. Verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into, the, into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love you so much. And we're so glad to be here together as brothers and sisters in fellowship in the light and in fellowship with you. And Lord, I ask for your help this morning as we turn to this wonderful story. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to hear, to understand, to reflect, to take from this story, Lord, the lesson that we're to take, that you intend for us to see. I just ask that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to hear, that you would help me, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to speak, and that this wouldn't be about what I think, but this would be about what you've said and what you have shown and what you think. And Father, I pray you would instruct us and use this time for your praise and glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We will be fulfilling prophecy this morning. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, but please keep your finger in John chapter 11 and 12 because we'll be right back. Matthew chapter 26. And when you find the 26th chapter, 
find the 13th verse. This is Matthew's telling of the very same incident that we just read about in John 12. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 26, 13. Truly, I say to you, this is a solemn declaration of Jesus. Wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Here we are in Logan, Utah. We're in from the perspective of Israel and Jerusalem, the distant isles of the sea. Amen. And we're hearing and we're preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And we are this morning going to talk about and remember what Mary did. What this woman did by breaking this alabaster vial and pouring the contents upon Jesus. That's what this sermon is about this morning. That's what we're talking about. And so we're fulfilling prophecy. Jesus said it would be so. Wherever the gospels preach, they're going to remember this woman. That's what we're doing this morning. Jesus canonized her right on the spot, didn't he? It wasn't 40 days later before he was to ascend. He said, you know, I think the Bible just needs one more story. Let's th- oh, how about the woman with that anointed me, right? It wasn't 40 years later that John inserted this. It was Jesus on the spot who canonized her and says, this woman will be remembered for all time wherever the gospel is preached. One scholar says this, it's as, if a, it's as a king might confer knighthood on the battlefield on a soldier who had performed some noble feat of arms. So right there on the battlefield, he's knighting this soldier because of what the soldier has done. Jesus immediately and publicly recognizes the beauty, the value, and the significance of what she had done, and he made sure of it that it would not be forgotten. He made sure that it would be sealed in the inspired scroll forever because Jesus wants everyone to see what she did, and Jesus wants you and me to see what she did as well. Amen? He wants us to see what she did. Jesus is in effect saying, friends, This is what I think is beautiful. This is what I think is valuable. This is what I approve of. And he's not merely pointing to her deed, but he's also pointing to the woman herself. If you see in Matthew 26, 13, it'll be in memory of her. He's honoring this woman for what she did. I think of 1 Samuel 2, verse 30. He who honors me, I will honor And later in the Gospel of John, we have this statement. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And that's basically the structure of the story that we read this morning. It's about a woman who served Jesus. Subsequently, she was derided and dishonored by those who saw her do it. But immediately after that, she was honored by Jesus himself, by the Lord himself. That's basically the structure of the story, isn't it? Woman honors Jesus, is dishonored for it by men, and honored by the Lord. So we have some important lessons to learn here, I think. If Jesus wants this to be in the canon, if Jesus thinks this is beautiful, and if this is Jesus honoring this woman, 
then we have things to learn. And this story, brothers and sisters, is a loaded story. There is so much to say about this, and we simply can't say it all in one message and one sermon. What I hope to do this morning is just pull out the nectar of this story. What is the essence of what's going on here? And leave it to you to think about all the other details. So turn back with me to John chapter 11 and 12, and let's meditate together on what Mary did. So I've divided this sermon up into three sections. First, we're going to look at what Mary did. Secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, we're going to look at why Mary did it. And then I'll briefly close the sermon with a reflection on what this means for us today. So first of all, what Mary did. Now we see in verse 54 of chapter 11 that after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he withdrew to a place called Ephraim. And in the commentaries that I was reading, the commentators say if you're reading about this city in the Old Testament, it would be called Ephron. It was about 12 miles from Jerusalem, which is not very far. The commentator D.A. Carson says this, it was far enough, uh, far enough away from Jerusalem to be safe for the time being, but close enough to be able to attend the culminating Passover. So Jesus wasn't going to just withdraw to Galilee or further. He didn't want to go too far because he would soon be returning for the Passover, but he departed so he could be safe. Jesus knew that by raising Lazarus from the dead, he had set off a chain reaction and that the officials were now formally seeking to kill him. Now, it wasn't for fear that he went to Ephraim, right? It wasn't because he was afraid of the leaders of Israel. It wasn't because he was afraid of dying. It was simply because his hour was not yet. So many times Jesus was sought they wanted to kill him, and he slipped away from them. And it says explicitly in the Gospels, his hour hadn't come. So we're not talking about Jesus being afraid. We're talking about Jesus being on the Father's timetable, and it simply wasn't time. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, right? But I lay it down of my own accord, and I've received this commandment from the Father. And he would lay his life down on the exact day determined by the Father. Amen? And that was the Passover, right? He would lay his life down during that festival and not a moment sooner or a moment later. Now we see in verse 55 and 56 that the people don't realize why Jesus is withdrawn or even what Jesus is doing. Will he attend the Passover, they ask. What do you think? They're there preparing for the Passover, purifying themselves. And everyone is a buzz. Is Jesus going to be here? Little did they know, right? He would not just attend the Passover. <laughs> he would be the Passover lamb. And they didn't know that, did they? Jesus was coming to the Passover to lay his life down to deliver us from the law. Amen? To deliver us from the curse. To deliver us from the wrath of God and the destroyer. Jesus was coming to do that. Not just in shadow, but in actuality. Amen? He came and he did. He died. He was crucified. And that was him suffering and bearing our sins and the sins of the world to save us from God's judgment. So thank God he came. Amen? Will he come? Yes, he came. 
And thank God he did. The stage is set. We have here a moment of incredible tension. The Sanhedrin is the highest official body in, the, in Israel. They're looking for Jesus to kill him. They've given orders that he would be reported if seen. And nevertheless, Jesus comes six days before the Passover. He returns from Ephraim to the vicinity of Jerusalem to the town of Bethany. And I like how, um, what's that? Did someone say Bethany? Oh, I thought someone said something. <laughs> he returned from Ephraim to Bethany. And I like how the text tells us in verse 1 of chapter 12 where Lazarus was. It doesn't say where Lazarus used to live, right? Because Lazarus isn't dead anymore. Lazarus is living and breathing and he is in Bethany and so I love how the verse 1 can tell us Jesus six days before the Passover goes to Bethany where Lazarus was actually living because he had raised him the town makes a meal for Jesus in his honor I think it's amazing how many times the Gospels Matthew Mark Luke and John Show Jesus eating, don't you? <laughs> I mean, it seems like he's always eating. And it's interesting because the Son of God comes out of heaven, the heavenly man, the Word of God incarnate comes out of heaven, and as the Gospels portray him, one of the characteristics that, we, that stands out prominently about Jesus is that he's feasting and eating with people a lot, Right? It's kind of interesting. Now, it wasn't that Jesus was gluttonous, but he enjoyed food, and moreover, he enjoyed people, right? He enjoyed meals and dinners, recognizing that meals and dinners were a blessing from God, and God was to be praised for them and given thanks for them and worshipped by eating them with gladness, and he enjoyed socializing with people too, right? He enjoyed being there eating and people liked Jesus coming to their parties that's why they would invite him because they liked him being there he was a he was a wonderful person to have around and it's amazing that oftentimes in the gospels we see Jesus is invited to dinner and he comes he's he's not too busy can you believe it you think if anyone could occupy their their time 24 7 with doing things he would be the one who could say, I'm sorry, I can't come to your pathetic little party because I'm busy doing the Lord's work, you know. But he came time and time and time and time again. He wasn't too sanctimonious to do it either. His excuse wasn't, I'm sorry, that's beneath me. And even, reflect on this, even on the eve of his death, he knows he's about to die in six days. And on the eve of his death, he invites, he he accepts another invitation to a meal. Isn't that just amazing? The amazing thing, furthermore, about the, what the Bible shows us about God is not only that he's a God who eats with us and accepts our invitation to dinner, but he's a God who invites us to dinner, right? Isn't that an amazing thing? He doesn't just accept your invitation. He invites you 
And furthermore, he doesn't just make meals for other people. That's amazing in itself. He makes meals for sinners. That's an incredible thing. So the fact that he invites you is incredible because we're sinners, right? We don't deserve to eat with God. First, God makes the meal of his son's body and blood for us to eat, that we may live forever. And then the Bible tells us that for those who eat the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus, he's preparing a feast in the future, the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we'll partake in if we believe in him. It's a big meal coming, friends. And you want to be there, and you're invited, and it's amazing because you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner. Do you see God that way? Do you see that God doesn't just want to forgive you? He wants to break bread with you, and he wants to have table fellowship with you as well. He likes you. He wants you to be at his table. It's amazing, isn't it? I hope you see God that way, or if you've forgotten, I hope you're reminded this morning that he really does care about you so much. And that's what Jesus shows us about God. I like how Spurgeon points out that all three members of the family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were serving Jesus at this feast. I quote Spurgeon, The service of the three members of that elect family made up a complete feast. Martha prepared the supper. Lazarus conversed with the honored guest. And Mary anointed the master's feet. So I think Spurgeon is right in pointing out, you know, don't miss what the others are doing as well. You notice in verse 2, it says Martha is serving. Martha, true to form, is serving. That's what she does. We see her serving in in the other dinner setting that she's with Jesus at. And I think it's wonderful that the Bible mentions her here in verse 2, because it doesn't have to, right? It could just say, A dinner was had, Jesus was there, Lazarus was there, and Martha was serving. The Bible honors her too in this story. Obviously, she was that was her that was her gift. She loved that. God made her that way. And yet in this story, it isn't Martha or Lazarus, but it's Mary who arrests everyone's attention, right? for good or for ill. It's Mary who is the salient feature here because of her surprising and extravagant and sensitive act of service and love to Jesus. Now look with me at verse 3, and we'll see what Mary did. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. I think it's important before we consider why she did this that we should consider the magnitude of what she did for a moment. So we're told in this verse that she had a pound, 12 ounces, of very costly perfume of pure nard. Now, how costly was that? Well, in verse 5, Judas is upset when he sees this prodigal waste in his perspective, right? And he gives us an an indication of how costly this perfume was. This could have been sold for 300 denarii. It was worth 300 denarii. Now, as I read the commentaries, the commentators who are scholars of history and know these things said, one denarii, a denarii, is 
essentially a day's wages for the average laborer. A day's wages. So he's basically saying this perfume could have been sold for 300 days wages. That's a lot of that's a lot of money. Let's put that into our own time here. So I did googled around a little bit and in the United States anyway, the average laborer works for about $200 a day. That's what I found out online. So 300 of those. So what's 300 times 200? Yes, I used a calculator because I'm horrible at math. $60,000. $60,000. If you want to translate that into today's perspective. And you might think, man, is there such thing as perfume that expensive? Yes, actually. Um, I looked online for how expensive perfume can be in our day. The most expensive I found was this perfume called Clive Christian's Imperial Majesty. And a little bit of it sells for $210,000. That's very costly. So Mary has this extremely expensive vial. Mary has this extremely expensive vial of perfume. Very costly. And you'd think, why doesn't she just dab it on Jesus, right? I mean, like, why doesn't she just apply a generous tablespoon, maybe? Right? But Mary pours the whole thing. In fact, um, Mark chapter 14, because this story, by the way, is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and in John, showing its importance. Uh, Mark tells us that Mary actually broke the container and poured the contents on his head. So John tells us that she's wiping the ointment that's on his feet, but she actually anointed his whole self, starting with his head, after breaking that vial. No, she didn't take the lid off. She broke it. She poured it out upon him. And that's why Judas was so disgusted. I don't think Judas would have probably had a problem if she just kind of put a little bit on him, right? It was the extravagance of it. It was surprising. It wasn't standard etiquette. Even in, I mean, today that would be crazy, right? But it would be crazy back then as well. You don't go to someone's house and they pour a whole bottle of really expensive perfume over you. Just don't do that. I've bought Bethany much less expensive perfume. And if I gave it to her and she opened it up and pulled the whole thing over herself, I'd say, what are you doing, right? (laughs) I might be a little indignant, but to be fair, uh, I think also when we we consider this, it wasn't necessarily perfume like we have it today. It'd be more like essential oil. So it's this bottle of oil of spikenard. But still, it was extravagant. It was surprising. It was not part of what was standard, and it caused indignation. So there's there's a huge thing that Mary has done here. A huge, unusual thing. Verse 3 tells us that she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. So on top of this, she does something else that's pretty intense and, and strange. She wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. What that expresses is um, 
profound humility and affection for Jesus. Because she's bowing, she, you have to go prostrate, you're bowing yourself before Jesus, you're humbling yourself by taking your hair and wiping someone's feet with it, right? Why don't you use a cloth? She's using her hair. So she's showing, she's showing humility. She's showing the same kind of attitude that John the Baptist had when he said, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. Something like that, right? And affection as well. Humility and affection. She's showing how much she, she absolutely adores and loves Jesus. We should, we should look at that and ask ourselves, do I know anything of that kind of humility and affection for him? And John gives us a final detail in verse 3 that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This is a, a statement that an eyewitness would make. And John was there, and I'm sure as he wrote that, he could still smell it in his memory, don't you think? He could still smell that perfume as if it was yesterday. I think it was indelibly marked upon his memory. And every time he thought about it, it was a symbol for him. That sweet smell must have reminded John not only of that moment, but what that moment represented. And he could have probably gone, gone with that thought many ways. Jesus himself anointed the Christ is a sweet-smelling aroma to God and to those who love him, right? Or acts of love to Jesus like this one that Mary gave to him, is a sweet-smelling aroma to God and to Christ himself. I'm sure that, never, that smell never left him. So that's what Mary did. Now, why did she do it? Why did she do it? Judas asks in verse 5, why was it not sold? He's asking, why did you just do that? And it's a great question. We've got to always stop when the Bible asks questions like that, even if they're in the mouths of the wicked, because they're very insightful, or they lead us to insights. Why? Here are some questions we should ask. Why now? Why now? Jesus had eaten with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus many times, and she never did that before. So why on this occasion, in these circumstances, why did she do it? What made, her, what made her do that at this time? Why this? Why did she do what she did? It wasn't good economics. Right, Keith? It wasn't good economics. It wasn't good humanitarianism, Right? It wasn't good humanitarianism. Hey, what are you doing? You're not thinking of the poor, right? What would motivate her to do something that extravagant, like pouring out a whole vial of costly perfume on him? And why her? That's another question. Why not Martha? How come Martha didn't do it? How come Lazarus didn't do it? You think Lazarus might do it, right? Lazarus would have a reason. Amen, Brian. Everyone would have a reason to do it. So why Mary? Is there some special reason that she did it, not others? Here's a fourth question we should ask. What would motivate me to do that? My 
cold and unfeeling heart. I mean, as you read this, do you not ask that question about yourself? What would motivate my cold and unfeeling heart to do something that extravagant for Jesus? When would I do something like that? Why would I do something like that? Would I do something like that for Jesus? Now, friends, I believe that the greater context of this story provides us with all the clues that we need to answer these questions and tell us why Mary did this and also to illuminate for us why we would do it as well. We just need to consider the setting and the context and we can answer these questions. I'd like us to consider four things about this story that will help us answer these questions. Firstly, and perhaps most importantly, please don't, please take this away. The first thing that we need to consider about this is that this was a holy moment. It was a holy moment. Now, what do I mean by a holy moment? What I mean by that is it was a unique moment. It was not a normal moment. It was an uncommon situation. And it was out of that uncommon situation that Mary's active service to Christ was produced. So we're not asking, why did Mary do this in a vacuum, right? Why did Mary do this out of the blue? But when you understand the situation, you realize this was a special, uncommon, holy moment. And it was an act that, all things being considered, couldn't have happened three months before, and it couldn't have happened three months later. It had to happen right then. So it's not something we can just reproduce any time we would like. Jesus himself says, you won't always have me with you. Jesus himself said this is a holy moment, right? You're not always going to be able to do this. And so I hope as you read this story, you don't just, you know, blankly look at it and say, well, how come I'm not doing this every day? It's one of those rare moments, brothers and sisters, where all the factors have lined up just right. This factor, that factor, all align themselves in one moment, and Mary redeemed the time. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 tells us that we should walk in wisdom in redeeming the time. And in the Greek, what that means is you're snatching up the time. You're not letting the time be wasted. You're seeing the opportunity and you're grabbing it. Have you ever, have you ever can you re- resonate with that? Maybe at a mundane level. Have you ever bought something? And you bought it because all the factors kind of lined up just right and you realize, man, I'm only going to have one shot to get this. And then you bought it, right? And you realize, if I don't buy it right now, I'm never going to have another opportunity to do this. It's not maybe the price I want, but I got to do it. It's my, it's my friend's birthday. I got to get it. It's on sale. I got to get it. it. There's only one left. I got to get it, right? It's that kind of a moment where everything kind of just lines up, and she's got this one moment to do it, and she redeems the time. She snatches the opportunity, and she does what she does. Now, it doesn't mean we can't draw principles from the story that would help us and apply, that we could apply every single day. 
But I really, truly believe we will miss the meaning of this story if we fail to see that this was a holy moment. And this was something that can't be reproduced. So that's the first thing for us to consider. Here's the second thing to consider about this act and why it happened. Mary acted under the influence of a profound feeling of love and humility toward the Lord. Now, how many of you know that feelings come and go, right? Feelings are not stable. And yet feelings come and they're powerful. They cause us to do things, don't they? But they come and go. Mary had been a disciple of Jesus for a long time and she'd believed in him for a long time, but she wasn't always compelled to pour perfume over Jesus, right? So it's not like every time Mary was around Jesus, she was like, I gotta pour perfume over this guy, right? I'm sure sometimes Mary was with Jesus and she was just peacefully enjoying listening to Jesus teach. She wasn't thinking about, I need to pour perfume over his head and feet. Or maybe sometimes she was just angry with Martha about something, right? And she wasn't thinking about Jesus at all. And then she kind of had to think, oh, I'm angry with Martha and I shouldn't, you know. Her feelings were not like always the same, just like it, it is with us, friends. But at this moment, she was powerfully affected by the feelings of humility and love for Jesus, and she wanted to pour the perfume on Jesus. She was overwhelmed with love. Why was she overwhelmed with love on this occasion? Why is this a holy moment where she's overwhelmed with love and that factor is in place and not three months ago? Well, because this is the first time she's seen Jesus since he raised her brother from the dead, right? And in the story of Lazarus's sickness and death, it seems like Mary took it the hardest. Martha took it hard too, but she was like, but Jesus, I know you're able to do anything right now. But Mary was just overcome. She just wept at Jesus' feet. She just poured out her grief to Jesus. And yet, lo and behold, Jesus raises her brother from the dead. So Jesus then slips away quickly, but now he's back. Now he's at a meal. Now he's sitting there and she just loves him overwhelmingly for what he has done for her and for her family and for her brother. She was overwhelmed with humility. Why was she overwhelmed with humility, humility on this occasion? Well, I think, again, of, this, of when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, we have there an astonishing, or we have the astonishing unearthliness of Jesus power, powerfully demonstrated in that miracle, don't we? The astonishing unearthliness of Jesus had just been demonstrated. And don't you think, and I'm not saying this was only Mary who was feeling humble and loving Jesus at this moment, but don't you think after seeing Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and considering who he is and all that he's taught, that one would be just profoundly struck by humility before him in the presence of a man who was clearly more than a man, right? So she just, on this occasion, brothers and sisters, had to worship him. She had to demonstrate 
her earthliness, her wonder, and her love before him. And I'm sure for Mary, on that occasion, one pound of very costly pure nard valued at 300 denarii seemed not too much, but too little. Don't you think? In light of how she was seeing Jesus at that moment. I wish I had more to pour out upon him, not less. Third thing to consider, the perfume almost certainly belonged to Mary. So she didn't go and get Mar Martha's perfume <laughs> and, pour, and pour it upon Jesus. Okay? Martha might not appreciate that. And even, if, and even if Martha said, hey, Mary, you know, go get my perfume and pour it, I don't think Mary would want to, right? She wouldn't want to give something to Jesus that didn't cost her anything, I think. And so this amazingly extravagant act, I think, indicates certainly that it belonged to Mary. And so what we take away from that is Mary was in a unique position to bestow such a privilege upon Jesus. The factor just lined up. It was a holy moment. She had the perfume in her possession to do that. She had this feeling of humility before Jesus. She had this feeling of love towards Jesus. And Jesus was there. And here's the fourth thing to consider about this holy moment. I believe, brothers and sisters, that Mary uniquely perceived that Jesus would soon no longer be among them. I believe that Mary perceived that Jesus was on the precipice of death. In every story that we see Mary, we see her. In every story we see her, she seems to be the most sensitive of the bunch. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus while Mar Martha's serving and getting all frazzled about details of hospitality. She's weeping at Jesus' feet. She's worshiping now at Jesus' feet. And I think that at that dinner, she looked into Jesus' eyes and she saw something different that she didn't usually see in his eyes. Because remember, she dined with Jesus many times. But his death was six days away and Jesus is about to face the wrath of God and the punishment for our sins. Not just some physical death that's put upon him by man nearly as horrible as crucifixion is, and it is horrible, but also the darkness of being treated as a sinner in the place of the world six days away, which is precisely why he has come to Jerusalem for the Passover. It's on his mind. We're going to see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane no longer being able to contain himself, being distressed. And there's Jesus in the midst of this party and everybody's celebrating and having a good time. And I think she saw him because it must, his mind must have manifested on his face and his mood and his words that Something is different about Jesus right now. It's kind of like he thinks this is our last, our last meal together, right? Something is weighing heavy on his mind. It, it's kind of like Jesus feels like he's going to die soon. Jesus is about to go away from us. And I think she sensed that and that she sees the opportunity realizing I don't think I'm going to have another chance 
to show Jesus how much I love him. With him being right there. I think a further proof of this, that Mary understood that he was going to die, is found in Jesus' words that are explicitly given about why she did it. Look with me at verse 7. Jesus says, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now the Greek is actually kind of confusing here. And the commentators point out, John's Greek here is, can, be in, it can be translated in many different ways. D.A. Carson, after looking at the different ways that this Greek statement could be reasonably translated, settles on this translation. Quote, She has done this in order to keep it for the day of my burial. It's still an awkward statement, isn't it? But Jesus seems to be pointing to the, to the motive for what she did. She did this in order that this perfume would be for the day of my burial, that she owned it and kept it for this purpose, to anoint him for the day of his burial. So he seems to be pointing to her motive in doing what she did. Now Matthew 26 says this, in Jesus' words, it's much clearer than John 12:7. Here's the quote from Matthew 26. Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. That's pretty clear. Mark 14 says this, She has done what she could. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Kind of like she knew she could only do so much. She realized the situation. She realized that it was a limited opportunity And Jesus says, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. So it seems like from the words of Jesus himself, Mary did what she did because she perceived and discerned Jesus is not going to be with us for very long. He's going to die. The disciples didn't get that, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, Peter's, hacking at ears, trying to protect Jesus from death. Martha and Lazarus probably didn't get it. The crowds certainly didn't get it. But Mary knew, I believe, that Jesus was about to die. Like Abraham, she saw ahead to the day of Christ's death. Like Moses and Elijah, who talked with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration about the crucifixion that he was about to perform in Jerusalem, Mary understood Jesus was about to die. Like John the Baptist who said, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I believe Mary, who believed Jesus was the Messiah and the King of Israel, she realized he's going to die and she didn't not believe in him. She loved him for it. She served him and she worshipped him. Not like Peter who said, not so, Lord, this is not going to happen to you. She, She saw this is the will of God. She savored the things of God and She worshipped him. And I believe, brothers and sisters, that's precisely why she was canonized by Jesus. Jesus is in effect saying, here is one who knows me. Here is one who believes me. Here is one who sees my death and loves me. And I think that's what this perfume is all about. 
It's not merely the smell of spikenard that filled the house. It was the smell, from God's perspective, of faith. It was the smell of love to Christ. That's what filled that house at that moment. And she wrought a good deed upon Jesus because she believed in him and she loved him in a world that hated him and didn't know him and didn't understand him. G. Campbell Morgan comments on this act by saying, the radiant loveliness of Mary's action shines like a rainbow of God over the dark clouds that were gathering about him. So if you, if you consider the setting, all the dark clouds of hatred for Jesus is crowding in. Jesus is feeling the weight of that. But right at the eye of the storm, here's somebody who knows Jesus and absolutely loves him and expresses her faith and her love towards Jesus, realizing he's about to die. It was a holy moment. All those factors were in place. He was physically there. He was about to depart. Mary had the ointment. Mary was overwhelmed with humility and love. Mary saw the moment, and she bought it up, and she anointed him. I'd like to close this morning by, reflect, by reflecting on what this means for us today. Here's what I don't think we should do with this story. I don't think it's right to take this incident and to beat Christians over the head with it and to say, see what Mary did? What's the matter with you? Why aren't you doing this? Have, have you ever felt that way about this story, right? See the extravagant worship here? What's the matter with you? Where's your extravagant worship? You're pathetic, right? Get worshiping Jesus like this. Go sell something, give it to the church, something, you know. I think that we're making a mistake if we take this story and we use it as a club on the heads of a Christian. I think that's the wrong way to deal with this. Here's what I think is the right thing to say. I think it's right to say, if you, if you are a Christian and a believer in Jesus, you are like Mary. And you would do the exact same thing if you were in her position, in her moment, and all those factors lined up in your life, you would have done the exact same thing. If you're really a born-again Christian, you believe in Jesus. Now, don't you think that's true? I want you to imagine you're physically with Jesus. You believe he's the Son of God and the Messiah. He just raised your family member from the dead. You're struck by he's, that, that he's something unearthly. He's the Son of God. He's way different than just any man. You're struck by his majesty, that he's the Messiah, that he's the King of Israel, that he's God in the flesh. And he's right there before you, and you're overwhelmed with love, and you're overwhelmed with wonder because of something he just did, because, of course, your feelings come and go. But there you are in that moment, and you own a very expensive bottle of perfume, $60,000. You happen to own it. It's yours. You've been saving it for a special occasion. And then you realize Jesus is about to die. The one that I love is about to leave. I only have one shot here to honor him. And you realize this is the way to do it. Wouldn't you do it also? I believe you would, brothers and sisters. I believe every Christian 
would. And of course, there's principles we can take out of this story, like I said, for every day. We can see in this story, Jesus is worthy of being worshipped. Amen? That's something that this story tells us. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our honor. He's worthy of our service and our love. We should serve Jesus every single day. And I would like to give us an exhortation this morning. Please do. Because that's what the New Testament tells us, that we don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to him and we ought to serve him with our lives and do all that we do for the glory of God. So yes, we should take that lesson out of this story. In the absence of Jesus' presence in this world, his physical presence, our moods are often changing, aren't they? And we constantly need encouragements and reminders. You know, he is the Lord. He is worthy. He is good. Let's serve him. He is the one to whom we should live our lives. If you want to live a life that's worthwhile, meaningful, that's valuable, live it in service to Jesus. And to all that I say, amen. And I'd encourage us with that this morning. But we are not to beat ourselves up with this story and say, man, Mary's worship was so much better than mine. Because I believe if you are a Christian, every one of you would do the same thing. And when I think about it from that perspective, brothers and sisters, I am absolutely honored to be your brother. And I'm absolutely honored to come on Sunday morning with you. And I'm honored to worship in song with you because I know that you are his child. And I love you because you love Jesus. And when we, what's that? I love you too. I mean, think about it. Here, If you're born again Christian, you're in the presence of people who would do this for Jesus, right? Think about that for each other. Nathaniel would do this for Jesus. Keith would do this for Jesus. Christy would do this for Jesus. We are here together among people who love Jesus extravagantly because of what he's done for us. Amen? When we love Christ today by believing in him, because by the way, Jesus says believing in him is an act of love to the Father and an act of love to him. When we love each other for his sake, when we recognize in each other that we are the children of God and we are the disciples of Christ, and for that reason we love each other and for that reason we embrace each other, we are doing and we are rendering to God service that is of the same quality of what Mary has done. We're loving Jesus. That's what's taking place here. And to God from his perspective, every time we love Jesus and love each other for Jesus' sake, I think that perfume fills the house. And we become sweet savers of Christ and of life wherever we are as we love Jesus and love each other and demonstrate that we are his disciples. And yeah, we have bad days, but we would, if the factors lined up, lavish our love upon him and on each other. We see, like Mary, our love for Christ in this world, as we demonstrate it, will always bring out the hatred of those who don't love Jesus. And in this story, friends, Judas's greatest sin isn't that he lied, and he did, he lied, right? He said, why wasn't this given to the poor? So he's acting like he cares about the poor when he doesn't, he's lying. So often people who 
well, we all are, right? When we are sinning, we want to still look good. That's what Jesus is doing, or Judas is doing. Judas's greatest sin isn't lying. That's a big sin. Judas's greatest sin isn't even stealing from the money bag, and that's a great sin too. But Judas's greatest sin in this story is failing to see the worth of Christ and condemning a woman who expressed love for Jesus. And that is what the world thinks about Jesus and about those who love him. And the world will despise us too when we demonstrate our love and spread that aroma in this world. But you know what? On the other hand, we despise the world, don't we? And we pour contempt upon their contempt, just like Mary did. She probably knew people would have a problem with what she did, and she said, I don't care. And the best of all is Christ is on our side, and Christ belongs to us, and we belong to Christ, and he will defend us from the accusations and the attacks from the world, just like he defended Mary on that occasion. Let her alone. She's done a good deed. And I canonize her right here for everyone to remember her for the rest of time as a symbol of what I value and appreciate. And that's how God feels about you too, my friends. It's not just Mary. We learn from what he says about Mary, about how he feels about everyone who loves him and who serves him. He that honors me, I will honor. He who serves me, Father will honor. Wherever the gospel is preached, she shall be remembered because Christ has a people and he loves his people and he honors his people because his people and him are one. Please stand with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful story of love lavished upon Jesus, of service rendered to Jesus, and of that service being shown to be valued by you and honored by you. Help us to take away from this story that nectar, Lord, and realize what it's about. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage each one of us today that we who have believed in you do love you. And Lord, I pray that you would help our moods and our feelings, Lord. Help us to encourage one another in your absence, to keep our eyes on you and walk by faith, to realize that we are loved by you and that we love you and that we love one another. And Lord, I just... Um, Thank you so much for the privilege of being a part of your family and being united with your son in the truth and in your life. And I just love my brothers and sisters, Lord. I pray you just be with them the rest of this week and encourage our hearts through your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.